passage. Our scripture today comes to us from 1 Samuel chapter 16. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul? I have rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and set out. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears of it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me the one whom I name to you. So Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling, and they said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he sanctified Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is now before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. He said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen any of these. So Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him. For we will not sit down until he comes here. He sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. The Lord said, Rise and anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. Samuel then set out and went to Ramah. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. A few years ago, I... I had the privilege to take a trip to Paris and around, around France. And about a month or two before that trip, I had this goal in my mind that I wanted to read something French before I went. So I decided I was going to read The Hunchback of Notre Dame. And I made it half a chapter. And I, I didn't make it. I've got this list. It's interesting. I've got this list about a mile long of books I really want to read, but I don't, I don't think I'm going to make it. <laughs> I have so many books I want to read and so many that I'm not going to ever get to. I want to read, for example, I, just FYI, this is us being honest. I really want to read War and Peace one day. Yeah, it's not going to happen. I would like to read Les Mis or Ulysses, but am I actually going to read those? No, <laughs> I would like to. I sometimes dream of the day when I will actually finally read To Kill a Mockingbird. I still haven't done it. and I don't think I'm probably going to do it anytime soon. Someday, in the distant future, I occasionally imagine myself finishing the last page of Paradise Lost or Dante's Divine Comedy, but it's not going to happen. But actually, right now, I am in the middle of accomplishing one of those goals, finally, finally reading a book I've wanted to read forever. This is T.H. White's The Once and Future King. Really? Okay, I've made it to here, just so you know. Um, But I've always wanted to read it. It's the story of King Arthur, but it begins when he's just a lowly kid trying to become a squire for a knight who doesn't really treat him well. And of course, 
This first section of the story goes that he meets Merlin, who teaches him and orchestrates a lot of the behind-the-scenes stuff. And at some point, the king dies, and there's, there's a sword in a stone. Cool. The sword in the stone. And this kid, who's the most unlikely person to become the next king, he pulls the sword out of the stone, not even realize, realizing what he's doing, and he becomes King Arthur. It is a story of humble beginnings, but events and dreams and work ethic, and most of all, his good and compassionate and just heart, all of these allow for this kid from nowhere in particular to become this larger-than-life hero that is now legend. And it's interesting, as I've been reading this book, and as I kind of have known the story growing up, I couldn't help but notice that T.H. White feels like he may have drawn some of his material from today's scripture. Indeed, the story we read today is the beginning of Israel's most famous and greatest king, David. And it does carry a lot of similarities with the tale of King Arthur. Chapter 16 of 1 Samuel is the introduction to this long epic of David that goes through 1 and 2 Samuel. And it comes way after God sends Father Abraham into the unknown. It comes way after Moses leads the people to freedom and they wander for a while in the wilderness. After Moses hands leadership to Joshua, it comes long after the Israelites form a system of governance based on a loose confederation of states that really doesn't function too well. And by the end of the book of Judges, the people are in need of some manner of uniting everybody together. We see the beginning of a shift in governing structure take place. We see a shift toward a monarchy. And the person who helps this to happen, sort of the Merlin of this story, is Samuel. The beginning of first Samuel, Samuel is born. He's raised up to be a prophet of the people of Israel. And he really assumes the role of the leader during the transition from tribal existence to monarchy. And in the first seven chapters, Samuel spends some time on what he sees as the root of the issue for the people of Israel. He sees the root of their issue as distance from God, distance from who they've been and who they were. But the people are convinced that their issues will be solved with a new government. They want a king just like everybody else. 1 Samuel 8, 5, appoint for us a king to govern us like all the other nations. Isn't that the human way? The grass is still always greener on the other side today, isn't it? Even after 3,000 years, we want what others want. I want what seems to be working for you. Always comparing ourselves to others. I heard somebody say once, comparison is like a seesaw. It goes up and down, and in the end, you just feel sick. I heard somebody else say, the grass may be greener, but you still have to mow it. And the Israelites decide that what everybody else has is what they want. A king will solve our problems. Of course, apart from comparison, from wanting to be like other nations, I think they want what we all want. We want something we can see and hear and touch. Human beings have an easier time trusting in forces that fit within our human understanding. A leader we can take in with our five senses instead of having to trust in an invisible, mysterious God of the universe. I get it. But we get King Saul right after that, who ends up being quite a tragic figure. He's strong, and he's tall, and he's good-looking. He's an inspiring commander and liberator, but he quick, we quickly see his flaws, and he turns out not too great. And Samuel warns everyone that if this is their king, 
they aren't going to do well as a people either. It turns out if your leader is corrupt, if your leader has poor character, that leadership may just bleed over into those who are being led. Simon Sinek says leadership is not about being in charge. It's about taking care of those in your charge. But for Saul, it becomes about being in charge. He loses sight of those he's to care for. And the direction of the people suffers. They are no longer headed toward greatness, toward goodness, toward God. And by chapter 16, Samuel is grieving his part that he played in the selection of Saul as the leader, as the king, and helping God establish this insecure person as king. So Samuel goes to find a new one at the command of God. God tells Samuel, fill up your anointing cup, fill the ram's horn with oil, and go. Of course, this is treason. This is betrayal of Saul. This is one guy going behind the king's back and beginning to undo the governing power structure. But Samuel prefers to support Israel and not simply Israel's leader. There's a difference, and he follows God's lead. Sam sets out for a new king to Bethlehem. And he meets the leaders of the city and Jesse, and he sees Jesse's sons, these strapping, good-looking young men. And he thinks he's found his new king for sure. The next king, it's got to be one of these guys. For sure, look at it. And then God whispers something in Sam's ear. He says, hey, don't judge by outward appearance. Don't judge a book by its cover. Remember, humans worry about the outward. I'm more concerned about the heart. You can also hear in the background of the text the caution and the reminder of what happened before. When Sam first discovered Saul in chapter 9, the writer says there was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than Saul. He stood head and shoulders above everybody else. Saul was tall, handsome, and looked like a king. I get it. I saw the same thing a few years back. My sister brought a boy home to meet the family. He was charming, handsome guy, six foot six, and everybody was impressed. But I was cautious. But they're married now, and they have a kid, and he's one of my best friends, and so it works, it works out after that. Some things work out. But God tells Sam, be cautious about anybody who's tall and good-looking. So Jesse calls his son. One by one, they came, come in front of him. Eliab, Abinadab, Shema, and many others, and they are all the same. These guys look like kings. But turns out none of them have the heart that God is looking for, and that's when Sam looks at Jesse and says, Jesse, don't take this the wrong way. Do you have any more? I've seen seven. Do you have the eighth? Do you have an eighth? And Jesse says, yeah, I mean, he's the runt. He's young. He's watching the sheep while the capable and possible candidates are right in front of you. And Sam says, can you get him? In fact, he says, go get him. And while you're going to get him, we're just going to stay standing here while you get so hurry. <laughs> and in walks the youngest son, who the narrator hasn't even given a name yet. We know it's David but you don't know in the story yet. All we know is that he was ruddy, he had beautiful eyes, and he was handsome. It's a little odd since we were just told not to you know, judge based on that. God says, don't get thrown off by how handsome these guys are in NYX David with beautiful eyes. I don't know. But God tells Sam, God says, this is the one. So Sam anoints him with oil in the presence of the brothers, The Spirit of God comes upon this kid named David, not the other brothers, not the father, Jesse. The Spirit comes on him. The shepherd kid, this runt of the litter, this unlikely king, apparently has the heart that God is looking for. 
This kid from super humble beginnings, this is his sword in the stone moment, and he will be a great king that God desires, all because he has the heart that God is looking for. Which makes me wonder, what is the heart that God is looking for? Like if you had been in that lineup that day, would you have been selected or passed over? If Sam had gotten to you and asked God about you, would God say, no, I'm good, pass? Or would God say, hold on, this one, he has the right heart. She has the stuff I'm looking for. We know nothing of David's heart at this point. All we know is that he is the least likely of the bunch to be king. All we know is that he is a laborer, a shepherd, not important enough to be invited to the meeting. So what makes David, this scrawny kid from humble beginnings, worthy of the crown? Maybe that's just what makes him worthy. Maybe it has everything to do with his humble beginning. It's interesting, later in the history of Israel, Prophet Micah asked something similar. How can I be worthy? How can I make my heart right? How can I be what God wants? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? No. Micah says, he has shown you what is good. And what does the Lord require? to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Eugene Peterson translates it this way. It's quite simple. He says, do what is fair and just to your neighbor, be compassionate and loyal in your love, and don't take yourself too seriously. Be humble. And and if I'm a betting man, I bet this David kid probably had some of that in him. I bet he's got a fair and just way about him. I bet he knows how to have compassion. And I assume that he's so green, he is nothing but humble in the presence of Samuel and all these other bigwigs. And perhaps this is just what the people need after Saul. They need somebody who recognizes justice, who knows compassion and humility in order to lead the people back to the same. St. Augustine said, that humility is the foundation of all other virtues. And in the soul in which this virtue does not exist, there cannot be any other virtue. So God chooses one of humble beginnings to be the future hope of the monarchy of Israel. It honestly makes sense to me that God would choose a nobody, a scrawny kid, the run of the litter, the humble one, to become king. It makes sense because much, much later, A long while after this, in a moment when the actual God of the universe would become clothed in skin and breathe our air in a humble setting once again in Bethlehem, he would lead with compassion and justice and become humility incarnate. He would play with children, he would wash the feet of those who would betray him, and he would sacrifice everything for his friends and for you and for me. It seems that God can do a lot with humility. Many of you saw it yesterday. This room was packed as we celebrated the life of Herman Fletcher, a man from humble beginnings from a tiny town in South Georgia who became a giant in this community in every way, inspiring so many to be their best selves and to leave the world better than when they found it. 
It is truly amazing to me what God can do with humble beginnings, with a humble heart. David was chosen because of his heart. And we know the rest of the story. He would struggle to be that king that God had hoped for, that the people wanted. He was human after all. He would have failures, and he would have deep, deep regret and pain. But I imagine later on, in his failures, as he learned and he grew older, he would come back to that day. I imagine he would think back on the day when a prophet of God came to his village and asked for him and told him that one day he would be a king, this scrawny little nobody. And I imagine he would look back and remember the heart that God desired and the heart that he needed to get back to. Let us pray. God, we need you, and we need your help. You have called us to great things, wonderful things in this world, but we admit we fall short. We get in the way of ourselves. Our pride gets in the way. So God, remind us of our beginnings. Remind us of humility. Clothe us with that humility. And continue, we pray, God, continue to give us people in our paths that show us what that looks like. Remind us daily that the path of following Jesus Christ is filled with humility. In Jesus' name, amen.